This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Let's do it. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the Transformative Principle podcast and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. And good afternoon, folks. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking with some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, some DNA information. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Greetings, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Welcome, and I am excited for our conversation today. Who do we have? We have with us filmmaker Ed Gray, who has a long and distinguished career as a documentarian. And he was kind enough to come on the show today and talk about his latest project, which is Secrets in Our DNA, which will be airing on PBS Wednesday night, January 13th, 2021, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. Uh, Obviously, if you're listening to this before then, you've got a chance to schedule it in. If uh, we're past that date, then you'll have a chance to listen to this podcast and hear Ed talk about his work. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Ed to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's it's a real delight. Um, just uh, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of a rundown of your career and, and how you wound up here. Well, uh, I, I actually met Fred, uh, I think it was 16 or 17 years ago. Through some fluke in my career, I happen to have made a lot of documentaries that explore questions of privacy and data. Some of it was kind of post 9-11 inspired as the rise of counterterrorism programs from the government raised a lot of questions about, well, what should and they shouldn't do with data. But um, to give you a broader answer to your question, people always ask me what kind of documentaries that I make. And 
I like to make the ones that are funded because uh, it is a career for me. It's how I earn my living. And to oversimplify in, in, in television, which is morphing, of course, as we know, into new forms of media. But really, uh, if you look at TV, there's science, there's history, and there's current affairs. And I've done all three of them. I've done films for the PBS series American Experience, which looks at American history. And uh, my favorite film that I did for them is a film called The Orphan Trains which looks at a little known chapter in American history where uh, orphans and people who weren't even quite orphans, but came from troubled homes were sent out on trains, believe it or not. 150,000 kids over a 75 year period and sent out to uh, towns, mostly in the Midwest where they were taken in by farm families. And the film explores the benefits and the costs of that well-intentioned but somewhat flawed endeavor. Uh, so I've done a lot of history films. I've done a lot of current affairs films, worked, made films for Frontline or back in the 80s. And then uh, have been collaborating for many years with Kiki Kapani, uh, who is the producer of Secrets in Our DNA, collaborating for many years with her on science films. Uh, and I've worked with her on, uh, we've, we've done a couple of films for PBS based on the work of Michael Pollan, uh, Botany of Desire, which looks at the world from a plant's point of view and explores how plants have gotten people to do their bidding, which they have, and uh, In Defense of Food, uh, a film about how to be healthy in what we eat that tells us to eat food, not too much, and mostly plants. So I've had a, a very varied career, and uh, this particular project originated with Nova in Boston. Their headquarters are in Boston, Massachusetts at WGBH, the public station there. And they have a series and they look every season at what are the topics that they think would be particularly valuable uh, for the upcoming season. And this uh, surging phenomenon of consumer DNA testing was something that they were very interested in and they brought Kiki and me uh, along uh, to actually do the filmmaking and work them work with them to to make the program. Well, we certainly have seen a ton of headlines related to what you call direct to consumer genetic testing. And I think one of the things that would be helpful for the audience is to uh, paint a picture of the broad scope of this phenomenon. Uh, how many people are doing it? Who are the big players? Uh, and then we can get into the weeds a little bit about how all of this works. Okay, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, to oversimplify, which are two words you're going to hear a lot from me today. To oversimplify, there are three basic reasons that would motivate somebody to do what's called a direct-to-consumer DNA test. One is that they're curious about their ancestry. Where did their, people often know where the grandparents came from, but where did the people going back many, many generations come from? Particularly here in the United States, which is an immigrant society. So ancestry. Another one is, do I have relatives that I don't know about? Some people are very curious to find out. So that's family, ancestry, family, and finally, disease risk. By looking at our DNA, we can zero in with greater or lesser accuracy, depending on the disease risk you're talking about. You can zero in on disease risks that you may be carrying in your genes. So it's those three uh, things that tend to motivate people to do this. 
sending in your DNA as a consumer to have it tested has only really been in existence since about 1999 or 2000. This is very, very recent stuff. Um, the, there are several dozen companies all told that are direct to consumer DNA testing companies, but there's really four big ones. Um, and they are Ancestry DNA, which uh, is an offshoot of Ancestry.com, a fascinating company uh, that I uh, joined myself because I was curious uh, to find out about ancestors before DNA testing got into this. They historically uh, were founded by members of the Mormon church in Utah and the Mormon religion. There's a tremendous interest in genealogy and ancestors. They have reasons, religious reasons, why that's very, very important um, in Mormon belief. Uh, so Ancestry.com got into this Ancestry, into this DNA stuff early on. They're now the biggest. Uh, number two is 23andMe, uh, who well over 10 million customers now. The third biggest is actually based in Israel is a company called MyHeritage. And the fourth biggest is in Texas, Family Tree DNA. So uh, all told, how many people have done it? Well, it's hard to know as a journalist because the data is held by private companies. But the best data that we have, uh, the head of Ancestry, the biggest company said about a year ago, uh, 30 million worldwide. And the numbers had been surging. If you look at 2016, 2017, 2018, the curve was really going up steeply. The 2019, 2020, it's starting to level off. So it's an open question how hot this field is going to remain to be, you know, whether it's economic reversals or the early adopter phenomenon that after all the early adopters kind of dive in, maybe that's exhausted most of the pool. I don't think anybody really knows, but we do know that uh, early in 2020, 23 and me laid off a bunch of folks. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that actually. Um, I will say, and, and we talked a little bit about this in the run-up to your visit with us, that uh, my siblings and I and some other members of my family have all done this. And, uh, you know, I went through the process. You get this little kit and you get these snap-off swabs that you're supposed to run mm -hmm. up and down your cheek. And then you throw it into the solution that goes back to the company. Uh, can you give us any more detail that you uncovered in terms of how they process all this and, yes. and and what they're actually doing. Okay, everybody, everybody take a sip of black coffee. This is going to be the <laughs> longest answer of our conversation, but it's an important one because to answer the question of how they do this, we have to start with uh, some basics. What is DNA? We can't really understand the social and political debates about the risks of DNA data until we uh, understand what it is. So I'm going to try to explain it as simply as I possibly can. DNA, the letters stand for deoxyribonucleic acid. And what is DNA? It's a molecule. It's uh, a, a tiny little thing that you can't see that's composed of a bunch of atoms arranged in a particular way. And the reason that DNA is a particularly interesting molecule it is that it's because it's that molecule that makes up our genes. In almost every cell in our bodies, uh, and this is also true of all animals and plants, by the way, but we'll 
focus on ourselves, almost every cell in our bodies in the little nucleus of our cell, we carry uh, an identical set of genes. It's amazing. You could get it from a skin cell, a liver cell, a brain cell, um, blood, all identical sets of DNA in every cell in the body. It's just astonishing. Uh, and what are our genes? Our genes are uh, nature's way of passing on inherited traits from one generation to the next, from your mom and dad to you. You get half your genes from your mom and half from your dad. Um, and your genes are made up of DNA. They began to figure, uh, DNA, uh, people think, is a very recent thing. It was actually discovered in the 19th century, but it was only really in the middle of the 20th century that science, scientists began to understand how it worked. And here's how it works, and this is the basis for testing. DNA, to oversimplify, is like a string of beads, but there's only four kinds of beads to make up the jewelry that you want to make. Uh, and they have letters. One of the Bs is called A, and there's C, G, and T. That's it, A, C, G, and T. Uh, they have longer names, but we don't need to go there. So um, in every cell in your body, if you look at all of your genes, uh, which are arranged on the 23 chromosomes that you have in, in each cell, if you look at all those genes and you added up all uh, the beads, you would have 3 billion pairs, in fact, because they, they form pairs, 3 billion pairs of A's, C's, G's, and T's. And uh, scientists figured this out some time ago and despaired of ever being able to figure out, well, what's the order? I mean, which one goes where? And in 2003, after spending $2.7 billion, scientists for the first time actually read from beginning to end all of the DNA letters in human genes. It was a big, big science story and got a lot of news. It cost almost $3 billion. It required the work of scientists in many, many, many countries. And when that news came out, uh, people who followed it, I would imagine, thought, wow, that was really hard. And that's never going to be anything that's going to be available to the average person. That was in 2003. And that's Fast what we forward. I'm sorry, but that's what we refer to as the human genome, right? The, that is the human the genome. Map. Yeah. It is all of the DNA in all 23 of our chromosomes. Uh, some maybe one or 2% of which is genes and the rest, what is it? Nobody knows. They have some ideas about what the rest of this DNA does. Maybe it tells the genes when to turn on or turn off. But uh, as much as we know, there's so much more that we don't know. So between the time they figured out the human genome and uh, uh, today, the technology of being able to read these A's, C's, G's, and T's has just, you know, it's, it's like going from... Um, you know, the Amiga computer maybe you had to play a game on or uh, to uh, what people carry around in their pockets today. I mean, the technological advance has been phenomenal. So uh, the uh, other thing that you need to understand about these companies is that although you could go out today and get all 3 billion of your letters identified for a few thousand bucks, that's not really a consumer price point. 
So what these companies, the 23andMe's and the Ancestries, what they do is they don't look at 3 billion. They look at 700,000, more or less. Still a lot. <laughs> it's still a lot, but on a chip that is the size of, well, here's an iPhone. Um, on a chip that's maybe like this big on an iPhone, they can uh, do, I think it's 24 customers, 700,000 uh, DNA spots in a whole bunch of different customers. The technology is just astounding. So a lot of the debate that we're going to be talking about in the rest of our conversation revolves around this issue. Well, if you just look at 700,000 spots out of 3 billion, I mean, is that a good idea? Why do they do that? How reliable is it? Uh, what can they figure out and what are they going to miss? But that's yeah. what most of them do is they and, do approximately 700,000 spots. And, and that brings my question of how accurate is it as far as, you know, your national identity, your ancestry and things like that. And also for health analysis and medical forecasts, those, those things are pretty important. That's, I think the reason why most people do this kind of genetic testing. And if you're only doing a small portion of it and you're just breaking off this thing and swabbing it in your mouth, there's not a lot of like clean room type sanitation to make sure that you're getting good stuff. So how accurate is it when it comes down to it? Well, I'll take the last part of your question first. Um, that's not so much uh, of an issue because they get, uh, when you uh, spit into the vial or use the swab, you're actually getting cheek cells. is isn't the saliva itself that they're interested in. They're interested in cheek cells. They get, they're going to get a lot of them, way more than they need. And uh, because of, of the volume that they have, the issue that you raise is not so much of a concern of contamination. Um, but the accuracy is the, big, is the big question. Why do they do 700,000? The reason they do approximately 700,000 is that of the 3 billion, um, something like over 99% of them are identical in all human beings. So the question arises if you're running a business, well, why would I wanna run a test if I know exactly what I'm gonna find 100% of the time? It's crazy. I'm not going to test everything. I'll just test the stuff that varies most often. So those 700,000 spots, which are called SNPs, um, are the spots that vary most often. Are they the only spots that vary? No, but they're the ones that vary most often. So that is a, a linchpin of a lot of, of the debate. So how accurate is it? Well, Let's talk about ancestry, which is the motivator for the majority of customers, according to studies that, that we looked at. Um, I've done mine with two companies. And from what I know from my family, I would say pretty good. You know, it sort of matches up. The way this works, to oversimplify, is that over uh, recent, over the last century, geneticists around the world have been collecting DNA. Uh, as part of their research before any of these companies arose and put together databases of information that would suggest what a typical SNP profile looked like for somebody whose ancestors were from France or Italy or, or maybe an island in the Pacific or maybe a province in China. But more often in uh, 
European countries. And the, uh, those databases of information that were established by anthropologists were acquired for free or for money, I'm not sure, but they go into uh, the resources that these companies use in addition to data that they get from their own customers. So the short answer is, there's a lot of data that links patterns of SNPs, patterns of these A's, C's, G's, and T's, patterns of variations that are thought to be typical of somebody of Greek ancestry or somebody of Russian ancestry or somebody of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. They're fairly reliable. So if your pattern uh, matches those patterns, that is the basis that the companies use to tell you your ancestry. If you're, you're primarily European ancestry, it's, you can have reasonable confidence in it. It's not going to be perfect. If you're primarily of African or Asian ancestry, you're going to have a lot less confidence in it because the amount of data that they're comparing you to is much less. They have much right. less data and they admit this. If you, you can go on the websites of these companies and they will tell you uh, and they're scrambling to catch up. Uh, but they, um, uh, there's, a, I don't want to give away too much from the show, but there's a, uh, one of the things we do in the documentary is we follow a group who are in a research study at a university in Pennsylvania from testing through results. And uh, the, it's a diverse group of 13 people. They're African-Americans and uh, uh, Latino folks and people of European ancestry people of Asian ancestry. And for the folks of European ancestry, they get maps from the company that are very specific as to where their ancestors have come from. And uh, the two uh, women whose origin is from China get a map that just shows China yeah. uh, because they don't know. The companies are unable to say, well, you came from Sichuan province or you came from, you know, um, Guangzhou province. Uh, Zhejiang province right. or something. <laughs> they don't have the data. So, uh, there's bias. There's no question about it. Yeah. Well, Ed, I think that you know, when we start talking about accuracy the way that, that Jethro was leading us into, um, obviously the thing that leaps to people's mind is the interplay between these companies and law enforcement. And so I think it would be helpful to explain what exactly the relationship is and whether or not there's any technological differences that affect how this data is being used. And again, obviously you have things in the documentary you don't want to disclose, but in general terms, are the police getting access, easy access to our private genetic information? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, but with like a lot of caveats. Uh, so let's take a step back. If you watch crime shows on TV or you, or you read the newspapers, you're probably aware that for many decades now, since the 70s or early 80s, there's been a way that law enforcement uses DNA that's kind of like fingerprinting. So if I go out and uh, commit a murder and leave blood at the crime scene and they find those blood, they find my blood, um, they have a technique which is called STR testing. I won't get into what that stands for, but they uh, it has nothing to do with what these consumer companies are doing nothing at all other than both of them look at DNA. In crime testing, STR testing, out of these 3 billion places in our DNA, they look at 20 regions, 
just 20. And they know these are regions where letters, uh, they're not in our genes, as it turns out, they're just in, in between spaces. And they're places where human beings have repetitions of letters for no apparent reason. T-A, 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 17 times in a row. Or G-T, 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 uh, nine times in a row. Is this all at humans or, or individuals? All humans, yes. Okay. So if you look at 20 spots where these repetitions are known to occur in your in law enforcement, and uh, my pattern of 20 spots matches the blood they found in the crime seat, I'm guilty to uh, a mathematical certainty of like a quintillion or a sextillion or some astonishing number. That's how they nail perpetrators with DNA evidence in court. Let's say you have DNA from a crime scene uh, and you have a really good uh, analysis of it and you compare it to the FBI database or your state database, say, oh boy, we're going to find this criminal. What if you come up with nothing? What if the perpetrator never committed another crime and was never STR tested by law enforcement? That becomes a cold case. And this is where this new phenomenon of SNP testing comes in. What the cops have been doing uh, in the first case to get a lot of attention, which we talk about in our program, was the Golden State Killer case. This was a man who in the 70s and 80s in California committed 13, uh, uh, 13 murders and 50 or more rapes. He was a horrible, horrible criminal, uh, left his DNA all over the place, but he had never been arrested. I had no idea who he was. Somebody came up with the idea in 2017, I think it was, well, what if we took this DNA that we've had lying around and we sent it into one of these companies as if it was the DNA of just a regular customer looking for relatives? Maybe if we could find this person's relatives, we could figure out who they are. And that's what they did. They sent in the killer's DNA. They found his relatives and some astonishing people who you'll meet in our program through painstaking work of constructing family trees and you know, it's a mix of kind of high-tech DNA technology and old-fashioned detective work, looking through marriage announcements and death records and all this. Um, uh, they uh, they found them, and it, uh, it it should be fascinating to see how that all unfolded. I mean, that's uh, you know, from a privacy civil rights perspective, obviously that's the kind of thing that makes people a little uneasy. Um, not just the fact that you're combining these two different forms of DNA testing, but that there's the potential for police to basically impersonate some anonymous person in submitting this information. Well, they do. And uh, however, it must be said, lest we make people alarmed for no good reason. The way this works is the cops don't submit, um, they don't look for relatives on Ancestry or 23andMe. Uh, there is a phenomenon where, uh, and you'll meet somebody in our program. She tested with Ancestry. She actually won a contest and got a free test. And she was a, a woman who was a sort of avid family historian and was interested in finding relatives. So if you test with Ancestry, you can match to other people, find relatives who also tested with Ancestry. But if they tested with 23andMe, you won't find them. If they tested with MyHeritage, you won't find them. 
And if they tested with family tree, you won't find them. So what do you do if you really are bound and determined to find relatives? Why you can upload to a free public database for family finding enthusiasts. And the best known of these is called GEDmatch. And this is a place where people voluntarily, and I can't uh, stress that word enough, where they voluntarily upload their data, not their goopy biology stuff, but just the ones and zeros that encode the data of their SNP testing, and they upload it willingly. So in the Golden State Killer case, what they did was they had the DNA process to modern specs, and they uploaded it to GEDmatch and uh -huh. compared it to the DNA profiles of all these people who had voluntarily, voluntarily put their data for other people to match against. So well, it, it, if I can know, add, we've been, hung, we've been hung by our own rope in a sense. I and was just a, going to, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, because Jethro and I talk a lot about this, that yes. the privacy expectations of people who post photos and videos to social media are yes. very, very low. And of course, we're seeing this in the, in the aftermath of the Capitol riots all of this material was put online voluntarily. And so people have no legitimate complaint if the FBI or local law enforcement are scooping them up because they you know, did a selfie in the speaker's chamber. So, so very match, similar idea. Very similar. And uh, uh, Jed Match, uh, in all fairness, on their you know, homepage said, you know, this, uh, you know, we permit law enforcement to join in. Of course, you know, people don't read the fine print. So after, I'm not sure if it was right after the Golden State Killer case, or it might have been after the, we, we reported much more detail on another case in Washington State, another amazing cold case where, you know, you so feel for the, the, the victims who were uh, an 18-year-old young woman and a 20-year-old boyfriend who were just murdered by some psychopathic killer. Uh, it was just horrible. So you feel for them, but you're also aware of the risk. But at a certain point, GEDmatch, which had about a million people in its database, they said, you know, we're going to opt everybody out of law enforcement sharing. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are gradually opting back in. Family Tree DNA, which is the number four company, which actually does testing, not just data sharing, as GEDmatch is a data sharing outfit. Family Tree DNA is the, is the real deal. They, they got in some hot water because they began to cooperate with the FBI and it kind of got out and they hadn't really been clear with their mm. customers. So they publicly apologized and instilled a whole lot of risk. So the headline here is that the technology is way ahead of the law. And how should we approach this? And what should law enforcement be able to do and not do? And that's under a lot of debate in state legislatures. And I'm sure will be in Congress because this, this is, you know, this is just the, opening act, it's it, the potential for finding people is seemingly limitless. Well, technology is way ahead of the law is basically the tagline for this show in a lot of yeah. different ways. Sure um, is in so, DNA. Well, let me, let me see if we can squeeze in a couple of other topics here. And this is so fascinating. And, and honestly, there's, there's a wealth of material here. But as someone who looks at the impact of technology on society, I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated at the implications of this genetic testing on sort of the core unit of, the, of society, which is the family, right? 
and and there's in a very mild and fortunately not hugely confrontational way this has popped up in my own family that that i have a relative who got a call from a couple of half sisters that he did not know he had and you know everything turned out fine they showed up for christmas everybody got along it was kind of cool I've read stories where that's not so cool and, and, and it's raised some really interesting ethical dilemmas, you know, and so I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. And then kind of related to that is this issue of, um, you know, the health aspects. I have friends in mm. the adoption community who feel very strongly about their right to know their birth parents so that they have a better medical history. And so this is starting to become a tool for that kind of revelation. And so the, you know, this concept of family and how genetic testing relates to that, I think is really fascinating. So dive in. Well, let's, I'll, uh, you know, this was, it was uh, the real challenge uh, of this program was there's it's such a rich field and we have family, ancestry and health, all of which are fascinating topics. And we only had a, a TV hour to look into all of them. On the health question, I'll just say something uh, fairly simple, I, I think, which is that, um, you know, genes are these arrangements of these four DNA letters, could be tens of thousands of letter pairs long. Uh, and we in the program look into uh, one, one genetic uh, disease risk that's gotten a lot of coverage and for good reason, which is uh, the genetic risk for breast cancer. Um, 23andMe tests for three genetic variations that put women at extraordinarily high risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And uh, one of the stories in the program, a, a woman who had no idea she carried one of these variants finds out and she thinks, well, this saved my life. Uh, she has preventive surgery and she will never have breast cancer and she will never have ovarian cancer. She doesn't have to worry about dying in her forties or fifties. That's good. The wrinkle is uh, that those three uh, variants that they test for, which are very important variants are far from the only ones. So if you test with them and you're, you don't read carefully their disclaimers, and in fairness to 23andMe, their, their disclaimers are very prominent on the screen. You could have another uh, one of these. These are called BRCA, B-R-C-A uh, variants or mutations. You could have another one that puts you at high risk of breast cancer that they don't test for. Uh, and this is um, kind of emblematic of the whole field, that there are some genetic variations that you have, whoop, you're going to get the disease, that's it. Others, mm, we got to really think about it and look at other things. Others that just uh, go far beyond the ability of checking 700,000 spots to determine. So there's increasingly places you can go in your community where they'll look at all 3 billion or they'll look at somewhere between 700,000 and 3 billion. So this is evolving very, very fast, but there's tremendous potential. The family um, stuff, uh, since this is television, takes up a good part of the hour because it's the most dramatic and emotionally compelling. And um, we see sort of the sunnier side of this and the darker side of this in the program. Uh, and there are um, just some wonderful, wonderful books that have been written about this. But uh, 
we uh, felt we were under some obligation to give a sense to the viewer. How often does it happen that somebody gets very disturbing news and nobody really knows, but uh, we uh, felt reasonably comfortable to put in an estimate that we got from people who've really studied this a lot. So we think that there's been about 30 million people worldwide who've been tested so far. Mm -hmm. And estimates are that of those 30 million, fully 1 million, fully 1 million have discovered that the person who raised them as their father is not their biological father or that they have half siblings that they were not aware of. So it's a very frequent phenomenon. And in the program, if you watch it, which I hope you do, Wednesday, uh, January 13th at 9 p.m., 8 central on PBS, you'll see a couple of stories that are very, very powerful that speak to the most fundamental question that we ask ourselves, who are we? And when your idea of who you are is completely upset by modern science and technology, uh, it can it could be a wonderful thing if you find something that you've wanted to find your whole life, as June Smith does in the program. And it can be pretty devastating, which is what uh, we're fortunate to have a very well-known novelist and memoirist, Danny Shapiro, uh, in our film whose experience is um, indescribably difficult. It will, in fact, be mandatory, must-see TV for me, and I'm sure for, so. many, <laughs> for many others. Certainly but for me. I, I would love to um, sort of wind us down a little bit with a little bit of a philosophical question. Um, mm -hmm. Your... your program is looking at genetics testing. And one of the things that people are seeking in their quest to know who they are is their genetic background. What, you know, what is the origin of the DNA that makes them up? But as we are increasingly aware, genetics is not necessarily culture. It's not necessarily cultural destiny. And of course, a lot of these companies run these ads where the results come back and somebody discovers that instead of, you know, dancing in a Scottish kilt, they should have been dancing in a, you know, a Greek taverna outfit or something like that. And, and I'm curious to find out your thoughts on the relationship of this. And of course, we don't remotely have time to discuss this, but it gets into some very difficult American sociological issues in terms of slavery and, and the impact of that on genetics and, and what testing is revealing. And so, you know, I, 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 I think that it is fascinating because as I said, my siblings and I did this and we wound up with pretty disparate responses, which was interesting in and of itself. But I'm interested in this from the perspective that it, it it seems to encourage people to claim a cultural identity based on this relatively new science. Well, uh, I, I love that question. Um, the big picture here is that consumer DNA testing helps us understand who we are. 
Well, you know, who are we as a species? We are capable as human beings of astonishing works of beauty and, and compassion and science and medicine. And humanity has achieved so, so many wonderful things. On the other hand, we have a long history of cruelty and savagery and hatred of people who are different than ourselves, which we saw in the Capitol last week. So we are uh, a mix of all these things. And uh, as long as people have been civilized and able to voice their thoughts, we've been talking about this. So uh, in our film, as, I, uh, as we talked about, we follow a group of 13 people, diverse people, uh, from testing through results. And we, uh, we, we have a story that directly looks at what people find out. Uh, it's very, very, uh, you, you meet in the program two researchers at a state university in uh, Pennsylvania, um, Anita Foman uh, and Bessie Lawton. Anita is African-American and Bessie's Chinese-American. Uh, and, you know, we learned from Anita, who has been running study groups for years, you know, she's African-American. Her DNA comes back 20% Caucasian. Well, what does that mean? Can't be sure. But one possibility is that an ancestor of hers in slavery was raped by uh, a man of European background. And coming face to face with a percentage like that, which one young man in our program does on camera, is very, very disturbing. And uh, one of the interviewees, African-American, biologist who we interviewed in the program talks about how painful that is, but it's part of who we are. And um, we define who we are culturally. And maybe for some people, that's more important. Uh, one of the need is, this isn't in the program, but in the, a newspaper story, but one of her test groups, uh, one of her participants, an African-American man, the DNA came back that he was maybe 20, 25% of African descent. Well, we don't know how accurate that was. What if he tested with another company? Might have been a different number. But he said, I don't care about that. I'm black. And as my mother always told me, when the cop pulls you over, they're not going to be looking at your DNA card and your DNA percentage. So this collision of culture and biology is, is really a rich, rich, and sometimes very painful topic to discuss. But we try to engage it because... Uh, DNA testing, I think the position that we kind of suggest in the film is that it's, it's not a bad thing. It can help us understand who we are. It can help us understand how we different. And it can begin to help us have a conversation as the people in this wonderful group in Pennsylvania do, help us have a conversation about our differences based on what we share as human beings. I think that is such a great point, Ed. And the thing that keeps going through my mind as we're talking about this is that there are there are so many things out there that we don't yet comprehend, that we don't understand, you know, like our ancestry and, and secrets, like um, Danny Shapiro that you shared, not knowing things, but but having some intuition or thoughts about that. And and this is a, a classic example that Fred and I talk about all the time where 
we're doing these things and we don't know what the repercussions are positive or negative. And we're still, we're still doing them. And in a way it's good to do them so we can learn more, but we have to be prepared for those risks that we have no idea what they'll be, you know? And so, so I just think that that's a really, um, uh, fascinating discussion. I've, I've loved learning about this from you and I thank you so much for being on the program. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you both so much. Well, it has been an absolute delight, Ed, and it's great to renew our acquaintanceship after 17 odd years uh, <laughs> since we, we did the Naked Employee. Um, let me just give a quick shout out because I think there's some nice overlap here that the uh, Finding Your Roots program, which is also on PBS, uh, yes. does a fair amount of um, work with one of these testing companies. I'm not sure which one they use. But I've watched that a handful of times over the last few months, and they frequently will put a chart in front of somebody and say, did you know you are X percentage whatever? And that's, mm -hmm. I think, where you know this question of identity and destiny um, really, I think, collide, and, and we're going to have to talk about this a lot more. Well, if you can get Skip Gates to, uh, to join you, I'd be delighted to talk with, with him about this, because he knows so much more than I uh, than I do uh, or could ever hope to know because he's been so steeped in this, particularly looking at DNA testing for people of African descent. He knows a great deal about that. But we, uh, one of our genetic genealogists who appears in our uh, program, Cece Moore, is somebody who works with Skip Gates very closely on those programs, has been his chief uh, DNA genealogist in many of the programs he, he's done. So we feel a link to the work that uh, that he's done the wonderful work that he's done. So, well, of uh, course, I would if he happens to listen to this podcast, he has an open invitation. To he's a busy us. guy, though. <laughs> uh, and I'll just try to sneak in another shameless plug for people who can't see our program on TV. It will be streaming uh, at pbs.org slash Nova for, I believe it's four weeks beginning on the day of broadcast, January 13th. So hope a lot of you can uh, see the program streaming uh, it's great to see it when it's broadcast this Wednesday, January 13th at 9, 8 central on PBS. Well, Ed, you're obviously an old hand at this. So thank you for the various plugs. Uh, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, as we did today, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. And one of those experts is Dr. Eric Stevens, who is going to be released, his interview is going to be released this Thursday, and we're going to be talking about how he did big data research on uh, prison uh, instruction manuals, which uh, may not sound that interesting right now, but trust me, it is. You're going to want to come back for that one. That will be at cybertraps.com slash seven starting on Thursday. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast and all your favorite podcast players. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have any questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you've probably enjoyed what you've heard today. And if that's the case, please leave us a rating and review. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to sharing more great information with you in the coming weeks and months. 
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.